0: And I know just where I stand. Another serenader and another long haired band. Today I am your champion. I may have won your hearts, but I know the game. You forget my name, and I won't be here in another year if I don't stay on the chart. Hello, Elon Dubrovsky here, local podcaster and science enthusiast. Are your podcasts viewing too much bunk all the time? Are your podcasts constantly making things up, driving you crazy? Are your podcasts full of shit? Think there's no answer? You're so stupid! There is! The Reality Check! Finally, there is a fun, skeptical Canadian podcast the san francisco hospital study on <laughs> on paper origami <laughs> <laughs> come on guys let me just can you okay. make a
1: reel of elan's paper shuffling <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: make it look... that sounds amazing is your music player a computer a phone or an in-between that doesn't matter because we work on all platforms the reality check you'll be checked So head on down to trcpodcast.com. That's the home of the reality check. Subscribe!
2: Do you ever find yourself mindlessly clicking through websites online, looking for something to do? What about during lunch? Or you're just sitting there for a few hours in the evening watching TV? Or worse yet, a boring dinner with the family. Then have I got a product for you. Head over to CosmoQuest.org and do real science while you're bored. It's a free sign-up, a short tutorial, and then you can immediately start finding craters, boulders, and other features on Mercury, the Moon, and even an asteroid. Spend just a few minutes a day or even a few hours a day contributing to science. Hey! you are bored anyway and do you really need to devote all of your concentration during commercials or law and order svu that's cosmoquest.org c-o-s-m-o-q-u-e-s-t dot o-r-g sign up today did you see that ufo sighting that made the news What did that latest study about alternative treatments really say? Is this photo making the rounds real or a hoax? Doubtful News is a unique website featuring news about pseudoscience, the paranormal, anomalies, and questionable claims framed with a skeptical view. Come visit doubtfulnews.com every day for news about cryptozoology, conspiracies, shams, scams, and more. Follow us on Twitter at Doubtful News. Critical thinking is essential in assessing today's news, Duffel News helps you decide, can you really believe this stuff? Welcome back to the second hour of the show. As promised, next we go to our space expert. Expat, as he prefers to be called, is an author and former TV documentary producer. He was a science producer of the BBC's television coverage of the Apollo moon landings, and he went on to write and produce some 20 science documentaries, including four major reports on the U.S. and Russian space programs. He has met and interviewed the majority of the key figures from Apollo-era NASA, Managers, scientists, engineers, and astronauts. We like to bring him on the show from time to time to update us on weird things in space. So welcome back, expat. How are you?
3: I am extremely relaxed and ready to go.
2: That's good. So let's get right to it. Uh, First up is something called the Clementine Anomaly. It's something that a bunch of listeners have been interviewing, or not interviewing, it's something that a bunch of listeners have been sending me, where uh, it's this image that was classified by NASA, but somehow some UFO websites got their hands on it. It was leaked out, and it shows this massive spacecraft on the moon. I've had now webmaster ads put it up on our site for the show tonight, uh, but can you tell us what's going on? I mean, you've seen this, right? So, so what is it?
3: Uh, yes, I've seen it. This is, um, I think, it's on the on the 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 far side of the moon. Um, that's the dark side, right? Well, no, that no, sure, that's not dark. It's sometimes dark, but then the front side is sometimes dark too. So, don't okay. be calling the back side of the moon the dark side. That's not correct. We stunt. I'm just an author, not a scientist, but I, but I'm a, I'm a technical author, so I'm, so I'm fussy. Okay. Um, yes, this is um, a, a, a small crater photographed by the Clementine mission, which was, um, I think, the U.S. Navy uh, ran it. It wasn't a NASA mission as such. Um, it uh, looks to me as though it's what we call a, a photo stitch error. Because, um, you know, when you see these large photographs of a large area of the moon, these, this is not, generally speaking, one photograph. It's it's very likely to be a, a whole number of smaller ones stitched together. And, and people who have advanced uh, digital cameras are probably aware of the photo stitch option, which enables you to, for example... Do a panorama by stitching together a number of shots and you can do a three hundred and sixty if you want so, but, but so, this image
2: this this image shows like a perfect uh rectangle and square shapes and, and it you know, it looks like the nose cone or the the nose of of a spaceship i mean almost like uh uh, what was that that famous trilogy thing uh, that was ruined in the 2000s? Oh, it was just like Star Wars. It looks like the nose of one of those Star Wars ships. I mean, it, how how can that be a, a stitching thing?
3: Well, you'd expect it to be a right angle, wouldn't you, if it was photo stitching, because the, the, the photos are, generally speaking, rectangular. Not always, but generally speaking, rectangular. Uh, it's unfortunate that when I... I get asked about what they call anomalies on the Moon. My initial reaction is to go straight to the photo library of the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter. This is this is a NASA mission, and it's not at all classified. It, and, and the images are magnificent. They are of a resolution down to 0.8 meters. That's about a couple of feet. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, it's brilliant. The coverage of the moon is well of over 50% at that resolution and much more than that at a, at a, a less resolution. So that's my first uh, reaction when people come up with uh, ideas like this is to go and look at the uh, reconnaissance orbiter image library. And unfortunately, it didn't work out too well for me because the sun uh, angle is very, very high that particular point of the moon so it's um, a little difficult to see what's going on down there but um one thing i will say stuart is it's not an alien base and it's not a a huge rocket nose
2: well but but all these people are saying that it is i mean it really looks like it i mean it doesn't that just convenient that The uh, Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter took a picture at a high sun or when the sun was nearly overhead as opposed to when it would have been more favorable to actually show that, oh, no, this actually is just a crater like they're saying.
3: (laughs) Well, people say these things because they wish they were true, but um, it's not true.
2: But what about the coincidence of China landing on the moon? I mean, just at this time when this image is coming to light.
3: Yes, well, that is a coincidence, and the place that the Chinese landed on the moon is nowhere near that object, so it's uh, it's completely irrelevant. Uh, The Chinese uh, did something very good by getting that uh, rover down to the moon. Unfortunately, I've just been reading today that um, it looks as though their rover is in a bit of trouble. Mm. Uh, It was supposed to be shut down anyway because Lunar Night was about to overtake it for a couple of weeks. But just prior to the shutdown, it developed a fault. And from reading what I can glean, I think that it uh, got overheated.
2: You know, I'm so not much of a conspiracy.
3: We, we, don't, we don't know whether it's ever going to come back after, the, after this lunar night.
2: Hmm. Well, you know, I'm not too much of a conspiracy person. But, you know, some people might be tempted to say that it's not actually a glitch, but that somehow they actually or the military has commandeered it to start looking at other things uh, and they just don't want the public to know about it. So they're reporting it as a glitch. Now, I'm not saying that's what's going on, but I'm sure some people will. Now, with that out of the way, though, let's go to the uh, another thing that you wanted to talk about. Actually, I want to talk about because uh, some a bunch of listeners were also emailing me and sending me image of what looks like satellite dishes peppering the lunar surface. They say that, uh, you know, It looks like satellite dishes. I mean, Jose Escamilla even has a movie out about them. So what's going on with this kind of stuff? I mean, do you think that an intelligent species was on the moon and was beaming stuff around with these
3: dishes? I know what you're referring to. And um, uh, the the thing that I I read was in Mike Barrow's book. The book was called Ancient Aliens on the Moon.
2: That sounds like a hot topic.
3: Uh, yes, and he specifically picked out two particular craters on the moon, um, Asada A S A D A, and Proclus. Actually, he got it slightly wrong. The crater is not Proclus itself, but the satellite crater Proclus A. Um, well, there you just
2: said satellite.
3: A satellite crater. That, what, what satellite crater means that it's it's a, 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 a sub crater. If a huge. A huge um, uh, meteorite slams into the moon, it creates the big crater, obviously, um, and, but then it splashes out uh, matter that falls all over the place and, in, and it creates smaller craters all around, and they're known as satellite craters.
4: Exactly. Okay.
3: Uh, anyway, um, yes, they, these craters are, are kind of dish shaped. Um, Mike Barra chooses to use a a photograph that's 40 years old. It was taken by the Apollo 16 crew, and its resolution is extremely poor. There was a very, very wide-angle shot uh, showing fully a third of the moon. Hmm. And now here's where my technique of going to look at the Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter photo library did pay off because uh, there are very good images of Asada and Proclus A at the fine resolution of the the narrow-angle camera. And you can perfectly well see that they are not satellite dishes, they are just uh, dish-like craters. Nothing, Nothing special about that. Um, when asked why he didn't show these much, much better photographs of, of these craters that, that he claims are satellite dishes. And his reply was, Oh, the sun angle's too high in those, but it's act- it, that's a lie. That's not true. In the, the case of Asada, the, the shadow of the crater rim is fully halfway across the crater. But now I want to, um, just add one thing. Which uh, by which I can prove that these are not satellite dishes.
0: Okay.
3: A satellite dish would have to uh, acquire information from a, a stationary satellite, and it, in Earth it would be called a geostationary satellite. Since we're talking about the Moon, I guess we have to call it a selenostationary stationary satellite. But well, why now, can't that, it get
2: stuff from a? a, a- a craft that's just orbiting, and you know, the, the it has a say. The moon has a network of satellite dishes, and the spacecraft just goes over that network.
3: Well, the, the, the meaning of a Selino stationary satellite would be one that orbits the the moon's equator and has a, a period that's exactly the same as the rotation period of the moon itself. So, therefore, would appear to stay stationary in the lunar sky. Now, I'm not going to go into mathematics. I don't want to scare your audience, Stuart, but you can calculate what how far away from the moon a satellite would have to be to for that condition to be satisfied, namely for it to, to appear to hang above one specific, specific spot. And it doesn't matter what the figure is. It's actually something like 80,000 or 90,000 kilometers. The point is that it would take it beyond what is called the L1 libration point. And that point is the point where the gravitational attraction of the Earth and the Moon are equal. So therefore, if the satellite is, is the other side of the libration side, it, instead of falling towards the Moon, it would fall towards Earth. So therefore, it, that proves that a Salino stationary orbit is an impossibility. In fact, it has been shown by somebody much better at math than I that that would be true for any tidally locked body.
2: And what's a tidally locked body?
3: A tidally locked body is a body like the moon that always turns the same face towards its parent body. We, we only ever see one half of the moon because it's tidally locked to mm-hmm. Earth.
2: Okay, well, but couldn't an advanced alien species or race or whatever use the moon just as like a relay point? Like, just have it uh, peppered with sat- satellite dishes, like all over the surface, and so it doesn't matter if the craft is in a, a Salino stationary orbit. It could go wherever, and it would be like the moon is just one giant satellite dish made up of all these smaller ones. I mean, after all, I, p- people are showing these photographs from, you know, as you said, 40 years ago or so, and aren't photographs much harder to fake than digital these days? I mean, so like, you know, you can go into Photoshop and do whatever you want with them, whereas with film cameras, I mean, those are those are exactly what the astronauts are, exactly what you would see, and so they're more original and more trustworthy, right?
3: Well, yes, except that what, everything that we're seeing today is, is... – Ends up being digital. I, I do not have my own personal library of glossy eight, ten by eight um, photo prints. There's everything. Although you know, actually, the the photographs that were taken by the Apollo astronauts were were mostly reversal rather than negative film. But never mind. The point is that I'm seeing them. I'm seeing all of these images on a computer screen now. I don't have um, photo prints to consult. But your point about the masses and masses of satellite dishes, well, yes, um matter of fact, the Russians did this for a while. They, they didn't have uh, geostationary satellites, so they, they had satellite, satellite dishes that acquired their Cosmos satellites for, for a very brief time, like about 20 minutes as they went overhead. But it's um, very unsatisfactory. <laughs>
2: hmm. Okay, well, so um, the final topic that you, well, I wanted to talk about tonight is um, you told producer Joe that you really wanted to talk tonight about NASA, the Egyptian gods, and numerology. Now, I really love it when you kind of blow our minds with your investigative reporting on this stuff. So I, I'm not even sure where should we start talking about this?
3: Well, let's start with um, uh, Mike Barra's favorite topic, as as he expressed on uh, the television series Ancient Aliens, the fact that uh, one of the most influential people in selecting the landing sites of the Apollo program was Farouk El-Baz, who is Egyptian by birth, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: and moreover, his father is a well-known Egyptologist. Hmm. Well, Mike Barra lights up this and he says, ha ha. Yes, that shows that there is an an Egyptian influence over the entire Apollo program. In fact, Mike Barra and his co author Richard Hoagland wrote in their book, Dark Mission, that Farouk Albaz was, quote, the most influential person in the entire american space program not not just apollo but the entire space program that they're leaving out you know the nasa administrator himself and the and the heads of the of the various uh, bits of nasa okay, okay. but anyway um, it is true i have met uh, farouk Elbaz very nice gentleman and very extremely knowledgeable probably the most knowledgeable selenologist that we have he's still alive um, it is true that he was very, very influential on picking the sites, but is it, but Mike Barrow goes one step further. He says that he not only picked the sites, but he picked the dates and times of the landings. Now, that is not true. That's the point. The, the, a selenologist is needed to point out sites that are likely to be of scientific interest but when it comes to the date and times of landing the requirements are totally different in fact the requirements were primarily the sun angle when uh, during the time that they were landing and also a favorable orientation in terms of the three big 90 foot satellite dishes that were spaced around the earth at um, canberra australia madrid Spain, and uh, Goldstone, California. Hmm. So they wanted to land when one of those big, big dishes was very favorably placed. So that has nothing to do, whatever, with uh, geology or selenology. It's not something that uh, Farouk Baz would be in any way considered an expert in. So, therefore, any idea that Hoagland and Barra have that uh, the that the landing moments were chosen when certain stars were at certain angles is uh, ridiculous. In fact, what they say is that that NASA is obsessed with only doing important launch and landing events when any of five stars are at any of five specific elevations.
2: And what would be the significance of those?
3: Well, just, I think it's, I think what they think is that there are elements within NASA who want to pay homage to the Egyptian gods, and this is how they do it. They, they just simply gloss over the fact that there would be a thousand engineers who would protest if they were told that they had to land at a time when it wasn't, there was no engineering justification for it. But in any case, if you look actually at the the, the star alignments on landing, they, they do not have their case made there were six landing sites and only two of them conformed to Hogan and Barra's idea about the five stars and the five elevations and one of those is Apollo 16 which landed 10 hours later than expected hmm. There was a computer glitch in the command module. So that any idea that that could have been contrived when uh, whatever it was, I think Sirius was at 33 degrees or something like that. But any idea that that could be contrived is completely ridiculous because uh, it didn't land when they thought it was going to land.
2: So it it seems like the the idea was that the engineers or or at least uh, this guy wanted to pay homage to the Egyptian gods by landing or launching at times when constellations corresponding to these Egyptian gods were up relative to some place like Florida or wherever they were landing on the moon. What about the numerology part? I mean, how does uh, you, you mentioned 33 degrees? I mean, What other kind of numerology is involved with this?
3: Well, the other uh, number, other than 33, is the famous 19.5. And um, they are related because um, the sign of the angle, 19.5 degrees, is 33. And 33 is also of Masonic significance. So Mm -hmm. here, here we're getting deep into the numerology of secret societies, a a subject that um, Richard Hoagland really loves. Now, the significance of 19.5 is that if you take a sphere and you inscribe a tetrahedron in it with one of the vertices of the tetrahedron at at the the North Pole, the other three vertices of the tetrahedron will appear at 19.5 degrees south. And, of course, likewise, if you point the top vertex the, at the South Pole, it'll be 19.5 north.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Now, why that should be considered so significant, I have no idea. It's just, as far as I'm concerned, this is just of passing interest and, and, and no more. But, but Hoagland makes a huge song and dance about it. Both Richard Hoagland and Mike Barra have written in their books that the 19.5-degree latitude is very significant because there are features all over the solar system at, which are at that latitude. And they quote Olympus Mons on Mars, the red spot of Jupiter, the black spot of Neptune, and um, they um a lower on, on uh, Earth. Well, more than lower is the only one of those which actually is at 19.5. The rest aren't simply not. As for Jupiter's black spot, it's disappeared.
2: Aren't these areas, you know, you you could be a little rough with the numbers, right? I mean, you know, 19.5, 18.5, 20.5. It it just still has to do with this manifestation of energy, right?
3: yes that's right but you know if you want to make a a theory like this you had better be accurate it seems to me
2: Hmm. i think that about covers it and i think i hear the music about to start up so i'm going to say uh thanks and uh i hope that uh you come on again soon
3: it's been a pleasure Stuart.
2: all right thanks boy that was a fascinating interview Alright, make sure you stay tuned to this channel because next half hour, those magical open lines.
0: There's many things I wish I didn't do But I continue learning I never meant to do those things to you And so I have to say before I go
5: Virtual Skeptics is a weekly web show in which we discuss the latest news in skepticism.
2: Whether it's a new case of spontaneous human combustion, a conspiracy theory, the latest update on the upcoming robot apocalypse, tech news for skeptics, or the latest wacky religious
1: claim, we cover it all. We record the show live as a Google Plus on-air hangout, so join us and our host, Brian Gregory, for an hour of mostly intelligent talk every Wednesday at 8 p.m. Eastern U.S. time.
4: Watch us at virtualskeptics.com and participate in the show on our hashtag, virtualskeptics.
2: The Virtual Skeptics. It's like Meet the Press, but with chupacabras. This portion
3: of the show is being brought to you by Einstein's Express, where we move your package so fast that we actually break the time barrier. In fact, we guarantee that your package will arrive at its destination at least 12 hours before you send it. Einstein's Express, when it absolutely, relatively, has to get there the day before yesterday.
2: As we go into the last half of the program, let's go to those famous open lines. First up is a caller going by the name of Fred. Fred, welcome to the program.
6: Uh, Hey, Stu. I'm a huge fan, a long-time listener, first-time caller. Great, Fred. Where um, are you calling from? Oh, um, well, I I hope you don't mind if I... uh, if I don't give you my location, um, I I have I've also given you like a a fake name. I, I think you'll understand when I tell you my story. Uh, because the, the the thing is, I've discovered that these aliens and those men in black can track you down from the simplest of things, you know. Mm-hmm. And, well, you, you see, Stu, um, I, I used to be a skeptic. Uh, that is until I made a post to this message board I frequent, dedicated to competitive burping. Um, oh, there was, yeah. Uh, very interesting stuff. You should uh, check it out sometime. But uh, anyway, there was just a thread about alien abductions, and uh, I, I said that I wasn't be- afraid of being abducted by aliens because I didn't think they existed. But oh, God, be <laughs> careful about saying that. <laughs> yeah, as you can pretty much imagine, that was the worst thing I could have said, because you know, obviously the aliens took that as a huge dare, and it wasn't. But a few months later, that they found me and I got abducted. How'd that happen? (laughs) Well, um, it happened one night after my buddies and I were getting, all um, I mean, in in no way enjoying the use of recreational drugs. Oh, got to be careful. These are open um, air live lines. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, I I saw this bright light in the sky and all of a sudden everything got very fuzzy and dark. And when I came to, I found myself on the alien ship. Oh, where was the ship? Could you tell? Were there I, any windows? It, it, no, it was a completely uh, no windows in the room at all. I, I and I tried to move, Stu, but I couldn't budge. I was all, you know, what do you call it? Uh, a oh paraglider. Gosh. <laughs> I'm. Um, I was, anyways, laying down on the table, and the aliens were moving about and doing other stuff. And at this point, I was, of course, wondering if they were going to start sticking those proby things up my rear end region. Oh no. <laughs> well you know i've heard tell that they make some people pregnant against their will too and now i know i'm a guy but i've seen that movie junior and if arnold schwarzenegger can manage to get himself pregnant how much trouble could advanced aliens have doing it to me yeah well uh, what i and you know what would i tell my mom and pop even (laughs) no (laughs) but well i don't mind telling you that i was sweating bullets but then one of the aliens came over and they told me that they weren't going to experiment on me, so that was a huge relief. Yeah, I can imagine. Right. You, you see, the reason they'd actually abducted me be, was because they had this very important message for humanity, and they want me to pass it on to everybody as best as I can. So uh, that's why I'm calling your shows, dude. What, you, you see, mean like how, how we need to stop polluting the Earth and wasting resources and all that other stuff? What? O- no, no the aliens don't care about no, the aliens don't care about that. They're worried about how we're destroying the future of our entertainment industry, specifically uh, our child stars. I mean, well, you got your... why, why would they
2: worry about that?
6: Just look at it, dude. You got your Miley Cyrus, Justin Bieber, Lindsay Lohan, Amanda Bynes. The aliens want to know what we're doing, what, why we're not taking care of our child stars better and looking after their mental health. Well, didn't Justin Bieber just, uh, just get arrested for DUI and drag racing and all that other stuff? This is exactly their point, Stu. Our child stars are a precious natural resource that we're just foolishly wasting without thinking about how it'll affect our future. It has to stop. Well, did they have some sort of of uh, beam ray that that let them sort of show you the future of what would happen if we destroyed that natural resource? Well, I think it, I don't think they need one, Stu. I mean, I think it's pretty much obvious that. You know, we destroy the the children are our future. We de- and we destroy the future of our entertainment industry. Pretty soon, uh, we're not going to have much in the way of entertainment. What would we do then? I mean, this is entertainment. I, well, although I'm not really
2: a child star, we won't give my age, but yeah, I, I'm more than a child at the moment.
6: Yeah, well, that that's uh, the, it, it's um, I mean, I, I we can we can continue on doing stuff like uh, your show, Stu, and. Uh try try on the, the best we can. It could be that uh television and movies uh, might be over with soon. Um oh also the aliens uh all they they want to see more cooking shows and they think we should bring back Firefly. <laughs> so they're a fan
2: of Joss Wheaton.
6: Yes, yes. Um but that that's about it for the message, Stu. Um I, I think we we, we really should uh, get on this. Uh, I, I don't know who we have to call. Maybe your listeners can. Um... Oh yeah, yeah. No, we we've had write-in campaigns and uh, and we can put
2: uh, the child stars on our Friday prayer list, which is where uh, every Friday people just take a few moments out of their day and just uh, pray for people on our prayer list, and we can put all the child stars on there and. And maybe we'll actually uh, – we'll, we'll help them and, uh, you know, well, we'll watch the news and see what happens with Justin Bieber and Miley Cyrus. Hey, hey, I just want to say thanks, Fred, uh, or whatever your real name is, uh, for calling in and uh, uh, thanks. No problem, Stu. Uh, uh, I'll keep on listening. All right. Great to hear. And next up we have a caller, Dave, from
7: Seattle. Welcome to the show, Dave. Uh, Hi, Stuart. I love the show. I'm a long-time listener, first-time caller. Thank you. Um, And I just want to say, I've been thinking a lot about um, the people that are working on recovering asteroids to bring back to Earth for mining purposes.
6: Yeah, they're going
7: to do a lot of business with that. Well, I've been thinking. I mean, let's say they find an asteroid with 10,000 tons of, let's say, chromium. Well, then they're going to bankrupt uh, totally totally collapsed the, the market in whatever metal they actually managed to find. Mm-hmm. So I really don't think they want to do that. So I've been thinking that maybe this is all a cover, a cover story. What they actually want to do is bring one or two asteroids back to near-Earth orbit to uh, park over major cities to then use uh, as blackmail. <laughs> they will say, um, well, why don't, you know, say to the various uh, national governments, well, you know the time for the uh, new world government has come and we're in charge and if you don't hand over all powers to us then we'll um, drop a large asteroid on, on a major city
2: Boy, that um, wouldn't be very good
7: No, but when you consider the p- people like the Bilderberg Group and uh, all the various um, secret organizations that are, are plotting and trying to you know, manipulate uh,
2: Dave, can you hear me? Are you there?
7: Makes, to me, it makes oh, more to me, it makes more sense than just you know mining nickel or, or whatever. It's an awful long way to go. Okay,
2: uh, actually, you, you cut out there briefly.
7: Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, I'm just saying that it seems like an awful long way to go just to uh, just to mine metal when uh, you could certainly gain more power and more money and more control by just threatening to leave a crater the size of Belgium of over, over, uh, you know what used to be uh, a major city. That is very true and something that we all need to think about. Well, thanks for calling, Dave. Yep, thank you very much indeed, and uh, keep the good work and keep telling the truth. Thanks. Bye.
2: Next up from the international line is
5: Warwick. Uh, He's calling from Sydney. So welcome to the show. Good morning. Uh, uh, Let's pronounce Warwick. It kind of rhymes with Derek. Okay. Warwick. Thanks. All right. So, what do you have for us tonight? I want to, I want to draw your attention to a, uh, a deep conspiracy theory. That, okay. Uh, oh, sorry, conspiracy. That uh, a lot of people know about the uh, the, the faking of the moon landings. Mm-hmm. But that's just the tip of the iceberg. Oh. A rabbit hole goes way, way deeper down than that. The people in the know want us to focus on the fake moon landings because that just draws attention away from the much bigger lie that all space travel has been faked. All space travel, even unm- unmanned satellites, are impossible, at least without the assistance of alien UFO technology.
2: Well, then how do you explain all the satellite images and you know, all of the NASA missions and
5: photos from you know, Phobos and all this other stuff? Well, they're, uh, they're, they're just um, high-altitude. High the satellite photos of Earth are just very high-altitude rockets and balloons. I mean, rockets work, obviously, but they just can't work in, an, in, a, in a vacuum. You know, you know who uh, Robert Goddard, Goddard was. Uh, I think the, so. um, he was one of the early pioneers of rocketry in the early twentieth century. He uh, patented and developed a whole lot of things involving liquid-fueled rockets, multi-stage rockets, guidance systems, and that sort of thing. In uh, in 1920, he published an article proposing sending an unmanned rocket to the moon. But um, but there's a problem with that. Any anyone who's studied basic mechanics in high school knows about Newton's three laws of motion. Mm-hmm. For every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. Well, in a, in a vacuum, there's nothing to react against. The the rocket exhaust has no atmosphere to push against, so it can't impart any thrust to the rocket once it's out of the atmosphere. Hmm. The uh, the New York Times actually published an article about this, uh, po- pointing out this problem on the 13th of January 1920. Uh, putting out that uh you know, after the rocket leaves the atmosphere and really starts its longer journey and i'm quoting the article here its flight would be neither accelerated nor maintained by the explosion of the uh the charges as it uh, as it might have uh, as it it might then have left to claim that it would be is to deny a fundamental law of dynamics now later on in uh, on the seventeenth of july nineteen sixty nine at the height of the moon landing hoax. The New York Times published a retraction, but that was clearly part of the uh, the disinformation campaign of that whole era. Well, so how did NASA and other people explain how rockets work? Well, they they work fine in the atmosphere, but uh, once there's no air to push against anymore, there's there's nothing to push against. Well, surely someone has has claimed this before. I mean, how, what's what's been the official response? Well, when uh, when the New York Times pointed this out in uh, January 1920, uh, Goddard basically went into hiding and started working in secret. In Mm. fact, he moved to uh, Roswell, New Mexico, in 1930. I don't think it's a coincidence that Roswell later became the hub of extraterrestrial activity. Exactly. Hmm. uh, Goddard Goddard actually stayed there working until until his death in uh, 1945, specifically the the 10th of August, 1945. That's the day after the first atomic bomb was dropped on Japan. Now, that can't be a coincidence either. I think... uh, he was uh, He was working in New Mexico, not far from uh, where, uh, from Los Alamos, where the atomic bomb uh, research was being done. And uh, yeah, it is possible that they um, didn't want him to reveal that the atomic bomb was done was developed with the help of uh, alien technology as well.
2: Well, do you think it could be anti-gravity technology
5: that we use to get to space? Look, that's completely possible. yes. if he, he was uh, he was working in Roswell, New Mexico for uh, more than a decade. It's entirely possible that all of the uh, the space travel that we've seen is, in fact, a result of uh, extraterrestrial technology, because we know it can't possibly be the result of uh, rockets. Okay, so just just so I get this straight,
2: you think that, or you're saying that all of the rockets outside of the atmosphere don't work? That a lot of the space program has been faked, but the stuff that is real that does actually work is alien or anti-gravity or that kind of stuff. So exactly. you're not, you're not exactly. saying that, like, we haven't been to the moon, at least, you know, it's with some, you know, maybe unmanned probe or something. But that... It's possible. It's possible. Okay. okay well, that that is a doozy. And uh, I thank you for your
5: call. And... I've actually got... There's a, it, goes, it's, uh, it goes a little further, actually. Okay. Because um, there's, a, uh, there's, a, science, there's a, a, a physicist and uh, science fiction writer called uh, Charles Sheffield. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you've heard of him, but uh, uh, yep. he's a, an English physicist. He actually, uh, he was a consultant for NASA for a while in the 90s, and right. uh, he was chief scientist of a, a company called Earth Satellite Corporation that processes remote sensing satellite data. Mm-hmm. Now, he uh, he published what was billed at the time as a science fiction story called uh, The New Physics, The Speed of Lightness, Curved Space, and Other Heresies. But it's clearly, uh, he was, he was trying to, uh, blow the whistle on what was going on that these, uh, these, uh, satellite photos weren't what we were being told they were. Hmm. Now he, uh, he has this story in the, he explains that basically if you, if you have a very long, say, railway track along the, a, a flat section of the Earth's surface, it's, it's curved, obviously, as it follows around the Earth. Mm-hmm. If you go fast enough, you can, the centrifugal force will start building up to the point where the, your weight will be less. And you get up to sort of orbital speed, the weight will actually be zero.
6: Hmm.
5: But of course, the weight, the weight can't be zero. That's an, I you can If you go first faster than that, you would have a negative weight. I mean, negative weight is an absurd concept. You can negative weight can't exist. Right. So obviously, that uh, that's got to be a fundamental speed limit. That nothing no no object that has mass can exceed, just like the speed of light is a fundamental limit that massless particles like photons can't exceed. Mm-hmm. Orbital speed is a is a, a fundamental the, the speed of weightlessness as a fundamental speed limit that objects with mass can't exceed. Hmm. Uh well that is definitely uh
2: a lot of food for thought. Uh so thanks for calling in and no uh good luck with you. Thanks. So next up we have Tim from Detroit. Tim, what's going on?
4: Hi, long-time caller, first-time listener, Stuart. I love your show. Uh, wait a minute, I might have screwed that up. That's okay, anyway, it it's okay. Matter.
2: You've only told me and the you and our closest million to two million friends.
4: Wow. Has your show gone downhill that, that fast? Only a million and two million? That's uh, terrible. Well, anyway. <laughs> I know, I'm just having fun. All right, um,
2: so... What are you calling for tonight?
4: Well, just a couple weeks ago, me and my friend both had the same, well, I guess not the same incident. We both had an incident on the same day. I, uh, mine was, I don't think quite as interesting, but I was looking at the sky like I always do trying okay. to see something cool up there. And was this and at night I noticed-
2: or during the day?
4: Well, it was at night. Okay. I don't go out during the day. Um, so this was at night, and I was looking at the moon, and I noticed that the moon was a crescent. And okay. then I looked a little bit later, and the moon was, in fact, a crescent in the other direction. Whoa. Yes. It's, I don't know how that even works.
2: I but... mean like the other, other part of the sky, or the crescent was facing a different way?
4: It was like the crescent was facing a different way.
2: How would that happen?
4: I don't know. I, I don't even... I don't know how that works. I'm not a scientist. Okay. I'm a school teacher. So, uh-huh. uh, but, but that happened. And that was, that was wild. Uh, so, my friend, the next day, he gave me a phone call. And he told me about this wild story. Okay. Which he swears is true, and actually his sister was there, and she swears it's true as well. Mm-hmm. so he was just uh, house sitting for his mom, and he and his sister were eating breakfast, and they were eating their cereal or whatever, and they noticed this really bright light outside, and they went and went to the door wall to look at the light, and they kind of were were blinded. it was just like a light, but slowly. They could see these figures through the light. There were a bunch of uh, short ones, and then one really, really tall one.
2: Well, this sounds a lot like the the last scene in uh, *Close Encounters* of the Third Kind.
4: That's what I said, but he said no. It wasn't like that at all. It was they were they were legitimately short. They were like three feet tall, and then one tall guy was like eight feet tall. And uh, I've been looking into this a little bit, and, and that's a lot like what people talk about when they get like abducted by greys and stuff. You know, there's the short guys, and then there's a the really tall guy. So I said, maybe maybe it was grey aliens. And he's like, I don't know, man. So anyway, he told me about that, and then he just flashed. It was just a flash of light. And then the next thing he knew, his mom was walking in the door. And his mom no. was going to be gone for two days. And he thought, oh, she's forgotten something, and she's or she's back early or something. But no, legitimately, two days had passed, and he was still sitting there with a soggy bowl of cereal. And his sister was, too. Well, that now sounds maybe, like a
2: classic missing time story.
4: Yeah, I, I agree. So that was the same day as my moon thing. So maybe the aliens who took him were like... You know, they—they they might have—I don't know what it takes to, you know, abduct somebody or to give somebody a missing time problem. But because I don't live very far away, maybe it kind of screwed with the space-time continuum or something, and and played around with my with my sky.
2: And you're not pulling my leg on this, are you? People like to I do that. I wish
4: I were. I wish I were. This is all true.
2: Wow, that sounds like a great story. Actually, two stories in one. Yeah. I- Thanks for calling, Tim. Thank you, Stu. The next up on the lines is Justin calling from Edmonton, Alberta. Welcome to the show, Justin.
1: Thanks for having me, Stuart. Glad nice to have to you. Finally... On. Thank you. It's uh I'm glad to finally get a chance to talk to you in person. I just wanted to say that I really appreciate everything you've done on your show. It really opened my eyes. Before hearing your show, I was very much a coast to coaster and didn't I just like the way it made my brain think in different ways, and then when I saw your show or heard your show, it started to make me think in a more logical manner and thank you. Um, yeah, I know it was I, I think you're doing great work, you have a great voice for radio, and uh, I, I think your your the school you work for um, probably is benefiting very much by your your podcast skills
2: thank you. Well, Um, as as Ian Punnett uh, used to – I guess his sign-on used to be, uh, I have a voice – no, a face for radio and a voice for print, but thank you very much.
1: (laughs) Actually, Ian Punnett was my favorite. He was the only one on Coast to Coast I found that was actually challenging his guests, but we won't go into that. Um, No, I just wanted to say that I I discovered your show. Actually, in one of your episodes, you had mentioned that – uh, a lot of people were discovering your show through downloads of Coast to Coast. And mm-hmm. I started hearing your episodes and how they were kind of related to whoever was tying your episodes into the show. And it made me start to really think. And it, it actually made, me, made my friends a lot more happy because now I'm actually looking at things and trying to uh, look at it logically as opposed to just kind of believing half-cocked of what's going on.
2: That's what I try to do, is I try to instill a little bit of critical thinking. You know, you don't have to take my word for it. Uh, in fact, I encourage people not to take my word for it, but rather to start searching the evidence for themselves and actually critically examining that evidence for, the, uh, for whatever phenomenon someone is trying to convince you of.
1: Yeah, and uh, one last thing I just wanted to say is that I am really looking forward to a coast-to-coast with you and Mike Barra uh, going at it, <laughs> or we'll Mike see if Bar- that
2: happens. <laughs> well, I I will keep everyone posted if that actually yes. does happen. I I have been emailing George Nori uh, since I got back, and uh, we'll see what happens.
1: Yeah, hopefully, hopefully he gives you a chance to at least explain yourself. Maybe not have you and Mike Barrack, you know, have an open debate. Although that would be wonderful, but to at least you know have an uh, someone who's not as as the other guests would have been for the show, someone who's actually there for pure science as opposed to conjecture. And conjecture's fun, but sometimes it's nice to have someone who goes on and really knows what they're talking about.
2: It is. Uh, you know, hopefully it'll happen. Um, don't worry, I will let everybody know
1: Right on. Well, thanks for taking my call, and all the Canadians love the slanderous words you say of us.
2: (laughs) Well, it is the frozen north. I do try to provide you a little bit of warmth and entertainment up there.
1: Right on. Thanks, Stuart. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. All right, bye.
2: With that final call, we sort of broke through the setup for this episode. For those who are listening to this for the first time, this entire two-parter was meant to be a bit of an homage and a bit of a parody of late-night paranormal radio programming in the United States. Something completely different for episode 100 and hopefully something that was fun to listen to. It was fun, though a pain in the butt to make. (laughs) Um, I do want to give a big thank you to all of the folks at The Reality Check, uh, Adam, Elan, Darren, and Pat for sending me a promo to use, and also Sharon Hill of Doubtful News and Tim Farley of The Virtual Skeptics for their very last minute scrambling to also send me promos when other people who promised me some audio didn't, uh, didn't end up doing it. Thanks also to Carl, Mike, Expat, Parrot, Dave, Warwick, Tim, and Justin for lending their voice talents to the episode, and an even bigger thank you to all of you, the listeners, for joining me on the journey to episode 100. Now, there's going to be one final piece of outro music, and if you stay listening afterwards, there's a very short outtake.
0: Midnight in the desert Shooting stars across the sky. This magical journey will take us on a ride. Filled with the longing, searching for the truth. Will we make it till tomorrow? Will the sun shine on you? Midnight. In the desert, and we're listening, ooh, are listening to you. They're really the reptiles that are running... The these uh, other, uh, you know, other conspiracies. Uh, uh... Well, you know, I think
2: that there's no such thing as coincidence. Uh, hey, Carl, in the, the about 75 seconds we have left, uh, what do you think of this conspiracy? Well, you mean, think that... it has Lenny Legs?
0: <laughs>
7: Sorry. Ed, ed,
3: that <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, I'll
2: start over with that.
1: <laughs> um, wait, 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 I'd leave wait. that in. Give me, give me, give me, please. Hold, please.
6: Okay, um, are you ready?
1: Wait, wait, wait! Give me, give me, give, give, give me, give me a second. Huh?